the key thing we have to remember that what happened in Osmin is a negotiated outcome that both sides agreed to. You're listening to the USSC Briefing Room, a podcast from the United States Study Centre at the University of Sydney, where we give you a seat at the table for a USSC briefing on the latest developments in US news and foreign policy. We'll cover what you need to know and what's beneath the surface of the news. Hello, everyone. I'm Victoria Cooper, Research Editor at the United States Study Centre. Before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land we're recording on today. The University of Sydney is located on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and I pay my respects to their elders past, present and future. Welcome to this episode of the USSC's Briefing Room, the Centre's podcast that gives you a seat at the table for a briefing on all the latest in news and foreign policy. In today's briefing, we'll be hearing from two of our experts in foreign policy and defence to discuss all the latest developments in the Australian and US maritime domain. I'm joined by the United States Study Centre Director of Foreign Policy and Defence, Professor Peter Dean. Peter, welcome back to the podcast. You're basically a seasoned guest at this point. It's great to have you sharing your insights with us again. Always good to be here. (laughs) And we're also joined by research fellow in the Foreign Policy and Defence Program, Blake Herzinger, who is joining us from Singapore. Welcome to the USC Briefing Room. Thanks for having me, Victoria. Long time listener, first time caller. There you go. It's great to have you both. And there's lots to discuss, but as we have a little tradition on the podcast, at the end of each episode, we try and get our guests to give us a a numbers fact or statistics, some kind of figure or fun fact that's caught your attention recently. So are you guys good to go on that? Good to go. To go. I've got thumbs up. Fantastic. Let's dive in. So we're here to talk about some of the developments in the foreign policy and defense space because the pace of announcements has been intensifying over recent weeks. We've just had Osmin over the weekend before we've recorded this episode. The Talisman Sabre joint exercise between Australia, the United States, and I think it's 13 other nations. We've also seen the recent commissioning of the USS Canberra. I always go to say USSC Canberra, but USS Canberra, which is a naval ship. And that also really caught my eye. Um, so Blake, I might begin with you. A lot of your work focuses on maritime security and sea power. Uh, you're a serving US Navy research foreign officer. You were an advisor to the US Pacific Fleet. You've worked on maritime security cooperation in Southeast Asia, South Asia, and the South Pacific. And you developed the uh, Indo-Pacific Maritime Security Initiative Program. So you're absolutely the perfect person to ask this question. Um, So there's been a lot of recent defence announcements, a lot of geopolitical developments. They all have us talking about naval powers, about ports, shipping routes, submarines, island chains, all these terms. Um, But I wonder if you could uh, explain for us what actually is maritime security and why is it getting so much attention at this point in time? No, that's that's a great question, Victoria. And uh, the pithy answer is that maritime security is all of those things. Or it's whatever of those things gets you budget at the time that is important to you. Uh, so it's a maybe winked at secret that across the world, every country looks at maritime security differently. We all have different concepts, different ways of laying it out. But when you drill down to it, most countries define it as this kind of all-encompassing grab bag of all things under the water, on the water, above the water. Um, some people break it into sort of non-traditional and traditional security, which on the non-traditional side, we'd be talking about humanitarian assistance and disaster relief. We'd be talking about fisheries patrols, uh, law enforcement, you know, uh, border patrolling. Uh, and then on the quote-unquote traditional side, then we're talking about greyhold warships, missiles, bombs, aircraft. Uh, but that definitional split gets really difficult when you start talking about countries that 
traditionally deal with non-military challenges at sea more than they do, you know, more than they fight naval warfare. These these are, you know, especially uh, in the South Pacific, in the, in Southeast Asia, these countries are dealing with constabulary issues day in, day out, not necessarily high-end naval warfare. So for them, it's very much traditional to be worried about fisheries and uh, anti-narcotics patrolling and that kind of thing. Um, and right now in the region, we're dealing with a lot of maritime threats that bleed across into various EEZs on the high seas. And all these countries are trying to get their arms around how to patrol these commons, how to uh, ensure good order at sea. And that's also bringing elements of, of national power into, into friction at sea. So we're seeing national competition at the same time as we're seeing illicit uh, and illegal behavior at sea. Yeah, fantastic. Um, thanks. That's really, really helpful. So as I mentioned, we had Osmin and there was an announcement of intent to rotate US Navy Marine Patrol and reconnaissance aircraft in Australia to enhance regional maritime domain awareness. So what does that actually practically mean? Is it sort of the same rotation that we're seeing with troops in Darwin, that kind of established agreement between the United States and Australia? What would that practically look like? Yeah, so this is something that's actually near and dear to my heart. So I was uh, an intelligence officer attached to a maritime patrol and reconnaissance squadron uh, for my first job in the Navy, uh, probably longer ago than I'd like to think about. Uh, and it would be, you know, conceptually, yes, similar to the, the Marines Rotational Force Darwin, bringing these planes from their traditional deployment sites, uh, particularly in Japan and, and uh, in Japan's Southern Islands and Northern Islands, uh, and bringing them into the region because really you can only fly so far, even if you start from Okinawa. If you fly from Okinawa, these planes can get down to the South China Sea, but they can't spend that much time there before they have to return for fuel. If you have a detachment site in somewhere like Singapore or the Philippines, that gives you a lot more uh, time on station, is how they would phrase that. And then coming from Australia, you could spend more time in areas uh, that are of key importance to the Alliance. And you can do a lot more work uh, between... Uh, Australian P-8s, U.S. P-8s, things like uh, combined anti-submarine warfare operations, a lot more training opportunities, and just kind of that practice flying together and around each other uh, that the U.S. has with Japan already, and gaining that kind of experience with Australia will be key. Yeah, fantastic. Um, okay, that's really clarifying. Um, Pete, I might I might bring you into this conversation Um you know, something I looked at at Osmin was that the whole affair is quite chummy. We hear a lot of terms like mateship and friendship and the unbreakable alliance. Um, and it's clear our two countries, the United States and Australia, we're very willing to work closely to together. There's a lot of trust. Um, but at the same time, I've also seen this kind of reticence about some of this language, about things like the unbreakable alliance, about mateship. Um, and at the same time that we saw all these like nice chummy statements, I also saw some grumbling from some critics saying, you know, looking at the Osmond statement and saying that uh, it's locked Australia into U.S. military strategy, that, you know, Australia has become a client state of the U.S. So what do you say to that and that sort of criticism? You know, are there risks to Australia's sovereignty and independence when we partner so closely to the United States on these sort of defence arrangements? Thanks for the question. Look, it's a really good question. It's a very um, pertinent question at the moment. It hasn't been this type of discussion around our relationship with the United States like this for a very long time. And I think that it's it stoked by some genuine fears about the direction that the regional security environment's going in. And in alliances, we talk about a classic dilemma is entrapment and abandonment. 
And for a very long period of time, when we spoke about our alliance with the United States, particularly during the Cold War, the real concern was, would we be abandoned in our time of need? What if a regional security crisis affected Australia? Proper, would the United States be there to help us? And I think as the international security environments changed, particularly in the Indo-Pacific with the rise of China and strategic competition in the region, and a very big focus, for instance, on the future of Taiwan and how that issue will be resolved and if that would come to force. Largely now you see a lot of the public commentary around our relationship is around entrapment. Are we getting entrapped in a potential conflict in the, United, in the Indo-Pacific because of our relationship with the United States? I think if you, if you drill these back into basic things, it's sovereignty is about the ability to make choices as a state. And what I would fundamentally say is that the alliance we have with the United States of America is a choice that our politicians and our public make every day. Every day the politicians get up and decide, like not actively, they're not making a decision and writing something down, but there is a calculation there is if this still in our net interest to our country. And every day that's happening. And I think what's happening in recent times because of the rising threat to the security environment, they're actually thinking it's becoming even more and more important. And AUKUS is one of these things, for instance, there's been a lot of criticism of, of AUKUS as well. But fundamentally, you've got to remember, AUKUS is a choice that we made as a state. We went to the United States, we went to the United Kingdom and asked for help to get a nuclear-powered submarine capability. I've heard people say, oh, we're the only ones paying money out to the United States. I'm like, we're the only one getting a capability in return. Like, we're actually getting, we're going to be one of the few navies in the world that operate this level of of, um, capability, which in, in my personal view is the preeminent naval capability in the world now once upon a time battleships were the preeminent combatant then aircraft carriers and and i personally believe particularly in our region that it's submarines and and particularly nuclear powered submarines if you look at the statistics that the there's overwhelming public support for the relationship with the united states the government and both sides has been very clear about deepening that relationship in response to the threat of what's happening in the strategic environment. Mm-hmm. And I think some of this is driven by genuine fears and concerns we, that we all have about conflict in our region. But I think it has to be contextualised within that. Really, um, this is about most alliances around about the balance of power or often, most often the balance of threat. Mm-hmm. And we know that the threat is rising. China's become much more powerful. It's become much more assertive. It's not doing things very opaquely. It's been willing to threaten to use force or actually use force to change um, international rules and standards and norms and change the regional balance of power. And this is, I think, a, a deepening of the relationship with the United States. As, a, as Osmond also pointed out, a deepening of relationship with Japan mm. is because these countries in particular have mutual interests. And I did a report that I did with some colleagues uh, that came out in December last year where we actually tried to go beyond the polling data and run workshops with members of the Australian community and ask them some of these very questions. And overwhelmingly, mateship was not a was not a term they like to use. I have to say the unbreakable alliance was a term that didn't resonate with the Australian population because <laughs> nothing's unbreakable. But what resonated with the Australian public is the relationship matters when our interests coincide with the United States' interests. Mm. And I think what is really clear, what we're seeing at the moment, that that is happening in our region in response to the changing security threats that we're facing. And I said the key thing we have to remember that what happened in Osmin is a negotiated outcome that both sides agreed to. Mm. So that's Australian agency. That's not us doing what the Americans tell us to do. That is us exerting our sovereignty as a country, our politicians exerting that sovereignty, 
just as we made a sovereign decision as a nation to pursue AUKUS in nuclear-powered submarines. So I think that's the key context that we have to, to view that question in. Yeah, fantastic. And talking a bit about those sovereign capabilities and Australia's capabilities, Pete, not only the director of the Foreign Policy and Defence Program at the Centre, but you've served a number of positions around military and defence studies and policy advising, and you were recently the co-lead on the 2023 Defence Strategic Review, um, and that basically lays out the agenda for reform uh, for defence's posture and structure. So how do you see some of these recent developments, be it at Osmin or around the Talisman Sabre or you know new contracts that we've been seeing in recent weeks? Um, are we making progress against you know to defend ourselves against some of these threats that you've outlined and what challenges remain? Yeah, well, it's been a big couple of weeks, as you said, at the top of the show. Um, And look, all of these, I think, have been very positive um, outcomes. So the outcome of the Land 400 Phase 3 decision has been a long time coming. That's a contract that had been under negotiation, put on hold while it was reconsidered by the DSR, and we came out with a capability number of 129. And I have to say, we've got to give Army in particular here and Defence more broadly, but particularly the Chief of Army and the Head of uh, Land Capability, General... General Vag, who worked extraordinarily hard because DSR only dropped in mid-February. Then by the time that was accepted by government, it's been a very short period of time to actually renegotiate that contract on Land 400, get a solution and an outcome passed through Cabinet, making an announcement and decisions. And what I'm really pleased to see is that these vehicles will be built in Australia. Now, both um, companies, Rheimatel and Hanwha, would have been great companies for the Australian Defence Force to work with. We already work with Rheimatal, obviously, on um, the combat reconnaissance vehicles. But I was also super pleased to see that a South Korean company got this contract. They're doing our self-propelled howitzers. It's a great capability and uh, it's going to be built here in Australia. So that's a very big step forward. Osmin, well, you know, I would be biased because I worked for Sir Angus Houston and Stephen Smith on um, the Defence Strategic Review. But I read Osmin, I looked at that communique and what stood out to me was force posture initiatives, which were key in the DSR, work on RAAF bases in Sugar and Curtin, and a key element out of DSR that the government agreed to and made one of their priorities was that northern base network. Mm-hmm. And we've seen a lot of work done in Tyndall and Darwin, but Sugar and Curtin are really important bases. More work on guided weapons and explosive ordnance, including the manufacturing of weapons in Australia in the next two years. More work on regional partnerships, a lot about the Pacific, which was fantastic. Space, which was a key part of the DSR, and we've got a report by Tristan Moss coming out very soon mm-hmm. with the Centre on um, on the Alliance Space Policy and Space becoming a force posture initiative. Maritime security that Blake was talking about before being a big focus. I was really super excited to see that part of the US force posture was bringing the US Army watercraft out to Australia to work with our Army and Littoral manoeuvres are a key focus for our army out of DSR. And integrated air and missile defence, that's a really, really key part of the future um, of defence and the risk management environment, really key for, and that's been done trilaterally with Japan, the United States and Australia work on that. Um, So I think these are all things that were highlighted in the DSR. So to me, OSMIN, this has been an OSMIN that is really delivering on some of the key features of the Defence Strategic um, Review which I know from our time in the US and stuff has received really positive feedback from the Mm. US government. And so this is the US government also leaning in supporting us to deliver our own capabilities under our own defence review, them supporting our sovereign decisions. So I think that's been, um, it's been a really positive um, couple of weeks. Talisman Sabres are, uh, 
you know, a fantastic exercise. The strength of the increased number of collaborators and the increased size of this over the years is really important. But of course, we've seen a very tragic outcome mm. as a part of Talisman Sabre with the loss of a Taipan helicopter and the four crew. That shows you the types of risks that not only our Defence Force members do, but those involved in these types of exercises. Mm. They're very high end, they're very complex. Blake's been involved in a lot of them personally. I've been lucky enough to go and observe a few and be involved. And there are risks like that every minute of every day by Mm. every nation involved being undertaken. And that's part of the thing that we should always remember that even in a time of relative peace, that our defence members undertake very high-risk activities to provide deterrence. And deterrence is really at the core not only of our defence strategy but that of the United States, Japan and other countries in the region too. Yeah, absolutely. It's a a really potent reminder at this time. Thanks, Pete. Um, We've had several new appointments in the US Navy the Biden administration nominated the current Vice Chief of Naval Operations, Admiral Lisa Franchetti, to be the next Chief of Naval Operations, which makes her the second woman ever to achieve the rank of four-star admiral in the US Navy. And when confirmed, she'll be the first woman to serve as the Chief of Naval Operations and on the Joint Chief of Staff. And we're also seeing a new lead for the US Indo-Pacific Command or Indo-PACOM. And so I suppose I have two questions and, and Blake, I'll ask you, um, firstly, what is the significance of these appointments? And then what are the major challenges confronting these two um, servicemen and women? The, there's been a, a lot of uh, churn around this nomination. Uh, there, was a, there was a leak, effectively, that saying that Admiral Papara was being taken from U.S. Pacific Fleet to be made the new CNO. And now that was something that is definitely non-standard. No one was expecting pack fleet to go to CNO. Usually we see pack fleet go up the hill uh, and take on uh, the Indo-Pacific command job, uh, which currently is, is being done by uh, Admiral Aquilino. So what is normal is to see the Navy running Pacific fleet and the Navy running uh, U.S. Indo-Pacific command. So this leak uh, indicating that Admiral Paparo would move uh, across and back to Washington, D.C., really threw a spanner into the works in terms of kind of upsetting the the normal succession line and what that normally looks like. So it introduced some questions uh, surrounding who would take that job. Uh, it sort of opened a, a window for a very, very short period of time uh, and introduced some speculation on whether the army would actually try to get a, a, an army general into that job for the first time. Uh, and so there was there was a lot of kind of uproar about this. Uh, and it was all kind of nebulous. No one really knew who had leaked this information. No one really knew what was behind it. Uh, so that's all been put to bed now. Admiral Boparo will remain in Hawaii. He will go on to Indo-Pacific Command, and Admiral Franchetti will uh, take over as CNO. Now, uh, Admiral Franchetti, I've never worked for her, but she has a stellar reputation across the Navy. I've never heard a bad word about her. She has commanded a, a carrier strike group. She's commanded a fleet staff. Um, she's been serving as, as VCNO. You know, she is intimately familiar with the challenges facing the U.S. Navy at this moment, and she's she's served for years now with uh, with our current CNO uh, Admiral Gilday, who will be departing. So, part of what we're we're dealing with now, though, is that we don't know when those appointments will be made uh, because of some unique congressional wrangling that's happening mm. with with one congressman in particular holding up uh, appointments of flag op- officers and general officers. So, we're actually heading into a very strange period where if something doesn't change by the end of August, we will have three services inside the U.S. Joint Enterprise that do not have service chief. That is uh, a troubling scenario for all involved. The uh, 
the Democrats are also searching for a way to kind of get these appointments through. But I think at the last count, uh, there's several hundred officers waiting for approval. They usually batch these together. And to do them one at a time would take 84 straight days of congressional work wow. uh, to do those things. So basically, Congress would do no other work for almost three months just to get these appointments through. So this is sort of the environment we're in. Uh, now, of course, that hang-up is something that is attached to domestic policy surrounding reproductive health. Uh, so we're dealing with a lot of big issues, uh, some of which are very, very domestic oriented, which are now affecting kind of the outward facing uh, military capabilities and leadership at the highest levels. So where does this kind of come in? What kind of uh, ripple effect does this cause? You know, we'll have an acting CNO, we'll have an acting, you know, uh, commandant of the Marine Corps. They won't be issuing like their real planning guidance. They won't be implementing kind of personal vision on the, on the organization. It'll sort of be like operating under when, when our government operates under a, a continuing resolution, right? The organization functions, but it's not 100%. You're not growing, you're not expanding, you're not implementing vision, you're just kind of existing day to day. So, you know, right now in kind of this shifting security environment that Pete already mentioned, that's a problem. You know, you're taking a, you're sort of taking a knee at a time where you should be implementing vision and growing and, and thinking. And instead, we're trying to figure out how do we deal with this issue of, uh, of succession and, and chain of command. And that also, you know, up and down the chain in a very nitty gritty fashion, people can't move, right? You can't mm -hmm. move to take your next job. You can't get the next guy out of the way. So people's careers start backing up and it's this sort of accordion effect up and down the chain of command. So um, that is sort of the significance of the and, and maybe the major challenge confronting both of those people at the moment. Um, now, on the Admiral Paparo side, moving into Indo-Pacific Command, you know, he is, again, intimately familiar with the challenges being faced uh, by the U.S. Pacific Fleet. Having just been out in uh, Honolulu myself about a month ago, um, you can say, you know, Admiral Paparo is, is very, very tuned into those. He is um, leading from the front. He has a vision and he is implementing it. Now, it is a, it's a vast challenge, and I think you're going to see a lot of work being done between Admiral Franchetti and Admiral Paparo to, to face those challenges and to help the Navy get on the right footing uh, to deal with them. And then as Admiral Paparo's Indo-Pacific Command, helping the entire joint enterprise work together and integrate to take on those challenges, uh, because we are seeing new requirements for you know the Army figuring out how it works in the Pacific. I, too, was very, very encouraged seeing uh, Army watercraft included in the Osmond Joint Statement. That's a, a capability that, that our army has tried to divest several times in the last five years. Um, whether they were going to buy new ones or not, we don't know. But you know, Congress told them, no, you will not sell those boats. Uh, they went back and said, okay, we won't sell the boats, but hey, we're selling the boats. Uh, so it's it's been a real battle trying to get everyone sort of on the same page. So seeing those going forward and getting them implemented and working together with Australian forces to work on things like littoral maneuver is key. So very, very uh, encouraged by seeing that uh, included in, in this year's Osman. Mm, yeah, a real, a real positive development from Osman, but also a, a big reminder of the ways that US domestic politics impacts its foreign policy and then also its alliance partners around the world, including Australia. I, I hear you alluded to your trip uh, to Honolulu and before I want to ask you both on your recent travels. Um, but before I do that, um, Pete, I'd love you to put on another one of your many career hats. 
as a, uh, a bit of a historian. Um, and we recently saw the commissioning of the USS Canberra, not USSC, USS Canberra in Sydney. Uh, and it got a lot of attention and a big audience. And I wonder if you could shed some more light on why this particular ship is significant and also tell us a little bit more about the name of the ship. Well, first of all, I would actively encourage the boss to look into a USSC Canberra. I'm sure we could all do. <laughs> Being here in Sydney near the beautiful harbour, um, I'm not sure a littoral combat ship from the US Navy is exactly the type of vessel that we'd be looking for. But uh, once upon a time, another part of my career is at UWA and, uh, and I got to UWA just after they sold the UWA yacht, which I was really unimpressed about. So maybe we could talk about a USSC Canberra yacht for, for the centre. I think that's fantastic. Look, this is a really interesting story. Um, USS Canberra, who <laughs> was just, just commissioned, is the first US Navy vessel to be commissioned not in the United States, the first one to be done overseas. It was also the original Canberra, and this is the second warship to be named Canberra in the US Navy. It was the first um, US warship named after a, a foreign city. This is because uh, the Australian and US navies fought the Battle of Salvo Island off Guadalcanal during a really pivotal campaign in 1942 in the South um, West Pacific. Again, an area that's once again a part of strategic competition. During that um, that battle, we got seconded by the Imperial Japanese Navy. They did a much better job. They sunk a number of uh, US warships as, and as well HMAS Canberra um, was sunk during the Battle of Salvo Island as well. So... The, the original what was going to be the USS Pittsburgh, which was a heavy cruiser, um, the same class of HMAS Canberra, was decided by the US president to be renamed um, to be the USS, uh, sorry, the, H, the USS Canberra after the HMAS Canberra was sunk during the, the Battle of Savo Island. She, she entered service the following year in 1943. She was a heavy cruiser and she actually had a very, very long storied history. So she was... Um, you know, at the Battle of Okinawa, she was involved in the Cuban Missile Crisis. She served five tours during the Vietnam War. She was reconstructed um, as a guided missile cruiser later on in her career. And eventually she was decommissioned in the early 1970s and struck off the register in the late 70s. So from 1943 to technically speaking on the US Navy list in 1978, it's a pretty long story career. Mm-hmm. Um, this time we haven't got a big heavy cruiser. We've got a littoral combat ship, uh, a much smaller vessel, but vessels that particularly are very focused on operating in this part of the region. Um, Blake there in Singapore has a, 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 he'll correct me, there's one or two um, littoral combat ships that are sort of on rotation that work their way through Singapore as well. So, And this is a class of vessel, um, this sort of, offshore patrol vessel, littoral combat ship that um, that our Navy has also been working on, that the DSR calls for an emphasis on a sort of a larger number of smaller vessels mm-hmm. um, in our Navy fleet mix. So that's sort of what we call tier one, the big f- destroyers and frigates need to be there, but also a larger number of what the DSR calls the tier two surface combatant. And they're because of the nature of the very littoral archipelagic region um, around us, but also the move to the very you know, large numbers of ships that the, the Chinese Navy is developing. Um, and, you know, there is, a, uh, there is something important about quantity as well as quality of your vessel, but also smaller vessels um, have smaller crew. They can, they can pack quite a lot of punch these days and they can do a lot of your presence and diplomatic engagement. And, and one of the things about navies is they offer, operate under the full spectrum of conflict from high-end warfighting, but also naval diplomacy is a really key part of an extension of our foreign policy of any country 
and of our presence in the region and our ability to cooperate with our neighbours and partners, particularly, again, the DSR's focus on our maritime allies and partners in the Indo-Pacific, which is a region dominated by water and the mm. maritime environment. So it's, it's, an, it's a fascinating story. It is one of those symbolic things that reflect the close relationship of the United States and Australian navies. Mm. Um, you know, even having Blake and the team reflects that, doesn't it? You yeah. know, that we've got a, a US Navy officer that we're willing to work with here at USSC. <laughs> so, um, look, a really interesting, um, really nice that... Um, Take that, that as a compliment. Yeah, that we'll be able to, to, um, to do that. And, and, you know, I think are a really powerful it's one of those symbols along with the, the we were saying before the use of the phrases mateship or friendship and you know i said i'm really not a fan of the unbreakable alliance but um these things do matter as symbols of how effectively close the relationship um is um and and working on those types of things is, is reflective of the longevity of the partnership as well that um, yeah, it's it's an interesting story and a, and a really interesting moment both in history, mm. but in uh, in the current strategic relationship in between the two countries as well. Yeah, fantastic. Okay, I wanna I want to read your travel diaries. Both of you have been to really interesting places. Blake, I might start with you. Um, could you tell us a bit about where you've been and if there you have any highlights or observations, any thoughts or reflections? Sure. Yeah, and I'll start from the beginning. Uh, about a month ago, I was in Honolulu in my uh, under my reservist hat, uh, working on a combined exercise actually with uh, with the ADF. So the, uh, the U.S. And, and Australian forces in uh, in Hawaii, working on issues of, of interoperability and Indo-Pacific security. Uh, so it was really a kind of a heartwarming moment actually, kind of sitting uh, side by side with our Australian counterparts, kind of in these tents. Uh, working on working on issues, and really, uh, you spend a lot of time complaining about the same things, uh, struggling to log on to the same computers that don't work. Um, you know, trading stories about how it's the same at home. Uh, but these are sort of the moments where uh, you actually build some of that camaraderie and build these connections. You know, actually, I'm sitting at my desk. I have all these cards from across the RAN um, and and the Army. You know. Uh, folks that I met that we we worked well together, we enjoyed it, um, we built friendships, uh, but we also looked at key issues and we thought about things and we exchanged views. Uh, it should be no surprise that uh, we probably both came away learning a lot of things or seeing things a different way. Uh, and as as Pete mentioned, you know, I actually find this a lot at USSC. Um, a lot of times where I kind of you know I'm politely and and gently reminded. That is a great American perspective. You know, <laughs> here is another perspective, maybe from a point of view, you know, maybe an Australian one, and uh, and it's a it's continual learning for me. And you know, I've been in Singapore for about ten years now, uh, working on alliance related issues, and there's always something to learn. There's always an opportunity to be uh, to try and adopt a, a kind of a more humble mindset and learn something from a partner and see your own policy from a different standpoint. Like, hey, look, these things seem like great ideas where you're coming from, but we might see it a different way. Uh, so coming away from Pacific Century, uh, I, I actually was really recharged and really uh, came away with even more enthusiasm for our alliance. Uh, great experience. Uh, I came home for a little bit and then I spent two weeks in D.C., where again, you know, uh, the U.S.-Australia alliance is kind of the first thing that people want to talk about. It is on everyone's minds, there is, I think, a lot of 
institutional energy to get after key problems. I think we're seeing a lot more attention being paid to things like technology transfer, you know, the uh, like in- industrial policy, things like this that traditionally aren't, you know, the, the sexy headline items, but now we're seeing it like, hey, if you want to talk about building submarines together, there's a lot of issues that we, you know, from the Australian side, hey, we've been asking about these things for a long time. Mm-hmm. And if you think this is going to work, we got to solve these problems. And I think I think you're seeing attention being paid to those things in new ways and, and by more people, which is great. Uh, and it's it, it was really encouraging to see. Uh, always really energizing to kind of be in D.C. and be around where things are happening and these policies are being made. And, and it's good to bring a perspective from far away because it's, you know, there's no easy way to get to Washington, D.C., especially from here. Mm. Uh, you know, if you're uh, going back and forth, you're spending half your life in airplanes. Uh, so, so yeah, I came away from those things uh, ready to get back to work here. Um, really looking forward to uh, coming down to Australia later in the year. And, uh, and you know, I don't know, I'm just uh, very enthusiastic to be part of this team. It was also, on a side note, walking through uh, kind of the, the halls of the Pentagon. And I looked far away and I left my glasses away. So I probably squinted uh, pretty extremely at someone coming toward me. And I could, it was a kind of familiar face, but kind of a smudge at that distance. And I realized it was Mike Green. So oh. I actually met uh, the boss uh, in the Pentagon for the first time face-to-face, uh, which was which was uh, a funny little Pentagon moment going all the way to the other side of the world to meet my boss who lives in Australia. That's fantastic. I mean, there's, yeah, there's so much to be said for communication and keeping those lines of communication open between alliance partners and sharing perspectives. Yeah, that's fantastic. Also hilarious that you met Mike in the Pentagon, as you do, as you do. Was as he in the does. gift shop? That's right. No, but I just had been. Ah, oh, there you go. <laughs> it's the best part of the Pentagon. It is the best part of the Pentagon. We can attest. It was fantastic. Um, Pete, was your trip, you went to Germany and Bulgaria. Was that yeah. tense and struggle or something a bit different? Uh, absolutely. So, yeah, I went to the other side of the globe to to Blake. I, I was very lucky enough um, and I was a guest of the, the Lursen um, group, so the, the shipbuilder. Um, they've obviously got a contract building the offshore patrol vessels for the Australian Navy. Um, and they took uh, myself, some colleagues from Amaspi, from Defence Connect, from the Australian Defence Magazine and stuff over to have a look at their shipyard in Germany, in Hamburg, um, and look at their corvettes. So as I said, the um, the government's, as a part of the Defence Strategic Review, has an independent analysis team working on at the moment. Um, for full declaration, while I worked on the DSR, I have no idea what's happening in that independent analysis of the surface fleet. No not met them and don't know what their terms of reference are or what they're doing. Um, but they know from the direction that we we know in the public version of the DSR are looking at a tier two surface combatant. And one of the questions that has been raised is that the offshore patrol vessels are largely unarmed. So what alternative could there be? So Lursen along with Navantia, um, KTM and, and a range of other shipbuilders are putting some options forward to the Navy as a part of this process at the moment. Um, there's a couple of fantastic things. So I, I Going, haven't been to Hamburg before. What a fantastic town um, that is! What an amazing shipyard! A very historical shipyard. Um, uh, Lursen owned um, the old Blumenvoss shipyard, and and I'm sure people might recognise a certain battleship by the name of Bismarck mm. that was built at the Blumenvoss. I actually stood inside the dock where the Bismarck was built, and on the lock where she entered the water for the first time. Um, so they have a very long history, over 120 odd years, lesson of building ships um, for Germany, for Europeans, and the German Navy. And one of the things they were showing us there was their K130 corvettes. And the most interesting thing of that was was 
really about the way they've done it with the German Navy. We've known, Blake uh, can attest to this, there's lots of discussion about shipbuilding in the US Navy and, and ship design. There is in the Australian um, Navy as well in that context. And what we saw there was uh, Lursen had built um, five of these corvettes for the German Navy. They were working so well and due to their increased threat environment from Russia and the war in Ukraine, the German big increases in defence spending, they'd come back to Lursen and said, well, we, we need warships and we need them quickly. This design has worked fantastically. Just build us five more. So they'd done a fixed price contract. They entered that um, whole process within a year. They laid the first keel down. Um, by the time we got to the shipyard, the, f- the first one they called Boat 6 because there's this, the second batch of five. Boat 6 was in the water doing sea trials. We went on Boat 7, which was just at the end of its fit out, and we saw all the way down to Boat 10 whose keel was laid in a dock in there, and they're, they're delivering them at a drumbeat of about one boat every seven months. And at a fixed price contract, and what the German Navy said to make this quick and efficient and fast was build us the same boats, don't change the design. And what they said, they had a a bit of obsolescence built in there, but that's question of speed to capability and of working with industry as a really close partner. It's a really fantastic example from what I saw there. And then we went down to Bulgaria. Now, Bulgaria, I have to say, it hasn't been on my dance card of where I thought (laughs) I'd go anytime soon. Um, Another big reason to accept the trip and... In Bulgaria, Lursen's building two ships for the Bulgarian Navy called the C-90 Corvette. Or, so it's a larger version of the offshore patrol vessel they're building for us. It's a much more capable vessel. It's got um, vertical launch cells. It's got a 76-millimeter gun. It's got a number of uh, more um, capable radar and, and, and offensive and defensive weapon systems. And this is what Lursen are pitching as one of the potential options to the Australian Navy for this Tier 2 surface combatant. So it was really interesting to go to the seaside town of Varna on the Black Sea, just across from, from the Ukraine, um, uh, to see the way that they're building um, that vessel and the capability that they have. And, uh, and Bulgaria is a fascinating place, I have to say. I know Blake spent some time there um, in his youth and uh, people were lovely and fantastic. A real fun as a seaside town. It was a real mixing pot from people all over Europe um, that were there largely on, uh, on holidays. And it was really good to see that sort of capability. So that's going to be an interesting thing that Lurson is pitching to the Australian government that will, I'm sure, be you know, considered alongside Navantia and all the others that, that Navy will have to make and Defence will have to make a decision about that, that speed to capability and the right um, and the right capable platform for the Australian Navy. But no matter which way direction and Navy goes, I think one of the, the, the advantages that I think Lurson just have, which is just obvious, that they have a shipyard in Perth, they have a contract with Defence, they have a they have dock workers and they have a design. So the question for defence will be, is that the best way to go mm. or is another shipbuilder a, a better way to go? Yeah, fantastic. That sounds like an excellent trip. You really sold sold me on Bulgaria. Sounds good. Um, well, before we go, um, I'd love to get your by the numbers fact or stat. Um, so, Blake, I might start with you. What's your by the numbers? So it's actually pretty fitting. It dovetails with uh, what Pete was talking about uh, in terms of shipbuilding and dry docks. Uh, so I'm, I'm working on a project right now looking at uh, the RAN and Australian maritime capability and, and where the opportunities and challenges lie with uh, working together with U.S. maritime industry and, and the U.S. Navy. And talking about dry docks, a full 22% of U.S. dry docks are currently out of commission as part of a uh, seismic survey conducted under the Shipyard Infrastructure Optimization Program. So they basically looked at shipyards uh, on a fault line uh, near the Puget Sound and said, hey, the, you know, in the event of an earthquake, 
these four dry docks would actually probably suffer catastrophic damage and people like slide into a sinkhole. So we have to close them until we can figure out, you know, if they're safe to operate or if we need to take them out of commission and conduct some major rectification work. So some follow-on kind of attached numbers. The U.S. has a total of 18 dry docks uh, spread across only four public shipyards, two public shipyards in the West, two on the East Coast. Uh, and one of the four that is currently closed is the only one that can accommodate a U.S. nuclear-powered aircraft carrier. So at the moment, if we had to dry dock a carrier, we would have to send it to the East Coast of the United States for it to receive dry dock maintenance. So when we're talking about this kind of stuff, you know, I know uh, Australia has its own um, kind of uh, impressive and, and robust maritime infrastructure. I know there's a uh, kind of a TBD on the uh, uh Henderson Dry Dock Project announced by the Morrison government. I know, you know, the Garden Island uh, graving dock, the largest of its kind, kind of in, in the region. But uh, we're talking about these kind of capabilities that we share in common across the alliance. Uh, the U.S. right now is is dealing with some serious issues that uh, that date back to some pretty dated infrastructure. You know, the, the newest one of those four dry docks was actually built before the uh, conclusion of the Vietnam War. The first one was built around the turn of the century. So. Uh, we're dealing with some unique problems and we need to figure out how to think about them together uh, if we're going to succeed. Fantastic. All right, Pete. I have three related numbers for you. Here we go. So 33, 1985 and one. Right. So this was the 33rd Osmin that we've had. Um, It is the first to be held in the sunny town of Brisbane. Mm -hmm. Um, and it dates back 33, it dates all the way back to 1985. So a little bit of my historian hat on here. Before that, we used to have a thing called the ANZUS Council. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, then we had a small problem with New Zealand going, you know, a little bit odd and rogue there, um, according to Australia and the United States. And uh, the ANZUS Council sort of merged when the, when the New Zealanders sort of separated themselves there um, back in the, the mid-1980s. Um, it became more of a bilateral um, relationship, although the treaty is still in place. It still exists under the ANZUS Treaty, but the US-Australia bilateral relationship then became about Osmin. Um, the first one of those was in 1985, as I said. So there's been 33 of them. And it's interesting, this is the first one in Brisbane. And uh, Brisbane, I think, is important because we know the Talisman Sabre exercise is going on at the moment. That's largely happening in the Coral Sea, largely happening off the coast of Queensland. It is spread all the way over to Western Australia. So, for instance, I know there's a particular part of the exercise that's being held this week in in the far northwest of Western Australia where the US Army will be firing HIMARS rocket systems, which Australia is about to get off the coast of of Western Australia, on the coast of Western Australia. Um, But I think Brisbane's important because the principles are met there. It's the kind of epicentre or the closest capital city to where the Talisman Sabre exercises are. But I also would like to think... Uh, not having spoken to the principles involved, that it's also a symbol of it being more northern orientated because of the focus that's very much on the DSR, on the northern base network, on the, the north of Australia from Queensland across to Western Australia is really becoming the epicentre of the military-to-military part of our relationship and cooperation. As I mentioned at the top of the show, the dual investment we're doing into RAAF bases in Sugar and Curtin is going to be really critically important um, so I'd like to think that, you know, going as to one of our northernmost capital cities there in, in Brisbane, um, in Queensland, is was really connected to the Talesman Sabre exercise and I'm sure gave Secretary Blinton and, uh, and Secretary Austin the chance to go and visit, visit the US troops that were out participating in the exercise and 
and also many of the other countries and nations that were involved. So uh, it's a really important time. Uh, you know, we might see Brisbane back on the agenda. Most of them have been in Washington, D.C. or Canberra or Sydney. Uh, my former boss, Stephen Smith, managed to sneak one in there in Perth one year. <laughs> um, so, but it's good to see Brisbane get on the dance card of, of, of Osmin hosts. Yeah, fantastic. Well, thank you both, Peter and Blake, so much for joining us on the podcast today. You've given us all a lot to think about. Um, As we wrap up, I'd like to point out a couple of other podcasts that may be of interest. So we have our technology and security podcast, TS, run by Dr. Mia Hammond-Erry, USSC's Director of Emerging Technology, as well as our USSC Live series that runs recordings from our major live events. Recent episodes include our readout from White House National Security Council staff, Kurt Campbell, Edgar Kagan and Mira Rapp-Hooper, an interview with Qantas CEO Alan Joyce and former US Ambassador John Berry, and our researchers' responses to the AUKUS report. And you can find all of these on our website, uscc.edu.au, or listen wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks very much. 